about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. So do not be ashamed. Sorry. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given because uh, given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immorality to light through the gospel. It and of this gospel I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to uh, convince that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What you heard from me Keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Virgilius and Harmonius, may the Lord show mercy to the household of Anasophius, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. Uh, may the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well in how many ways he helped me in the feasts. 
Thanks, Kylie. And good morning. Let me add my welcome to Becky's. My name's Andrew. I'm the senior minister here. Uh, it's so good to see you this morning. There are some new folk. You're really welcome. We hope you have a great morning with us. Stay for morning tea if you can. Um, if you, you know, decide you want to make this your church in the course of this s- service, uh, come and talk to us and you can come to the newcomer's lunch. We'd love to, we'd love to have you along. Um, let me pray again as we think about uh, that part of Scripture. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word and we ask you please to teach us of it and teach us of yourself now as we think about it. For Jesus' sake, amen. How much effort do you put into being respectable? Uh, There's an outline on your sheets if you want to follow the sermon along. We're at the introduction, of course. Um, How much effort do you put into being respectable? Now, when you hear that word respectable, you might think of kind of middle-aged men in polo shirts playing golf or, or, you know, skinny women in black dresses sipping champagne and (laughs) laughing in a kind of, you know, slightly elegant way. And, And so your probably is, I don't put any effort into being respectable at all. Um, But I don't mean respectable like that. I mean respectable in a meaningful sense, like to the people and the communities you're actually connected to. Um, How much effort do you put into people liking you, accepting you, thinking you're okay, fitting in? Maybe being cool is actually better language, although you might not say that, but maybe you want to be cool, want to be accepted. I reckon for a lot of us, if we're honest, the answer is quite a lot of effort. Uh, We've internalised a concern about what people think of us. Uh, We want to make a good impression. We want people to think we're okay, and so we think about what we should wear, what we should look like, what we should say. Being a Christian doesn't help with this project much these days. Uh, with some people, it's, this is not a big deal, but for some, it, it's really a black mark to be a Christian, especially around these parts. And so sometimes we work extra hard now to show people that we, we're really very nice and normal. Um, you know, even we might, you know, we're actually even quite cool. Um, you know, some, sometimes we kind of imply that, oh, we're not like them. We're not like those embarrassing Christians that you might have heard about. You may have faces coming to mind now of those embarrassing Christians. When Paul writes to Timothy, the the letter that we're reading in church, he was one of those embarrassing Christians. Here are two paintings of him in prison, that's Rembrandt's rendering. He was one of those embarrassing Christians. He was in prison when he writes this. And it's clear many people were embarrassed by him. In fact, ashamed of him. At the end of the passage we're looking at, you might have noticed as Kylie read, Paul says, everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. He was being abandoned, like by a lot of people. They were embarrassed by him. But Paul tells Timothy not to be ashamed of him. And he explains why. And I think... It's an important reminder to us, this passage, at a time when Christianity is no longer very respectable. 
So let's dive into it. This is where we're going. We'll first look briefly at what Paul calls Timothy to do in verse 8. Then at more length, we'll think about the reasons he gives him to do it in verses 9 to 12. And finally, we'll look at how he unpacks what that will mean for Timothy and where that leaves us. So that's where we're going. Okay, so last week we saw how Paul reminds Timothy of who he is and then what his job is. His job, he says, is to rekindle his, mis- his ministry in the knowledge that God has given him a spirit of power, love, and self-discipline. And our passage follows straight on. Paul tells Timothy what this is going to mean specifically. Verse 8, he says, So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join in me for su- in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Don't be ashamed. Join with me in suffering. Notice what Timothy must not be ashamed of. The testimony about our Lord or me, his prisoner. Um, Timothy must not be ashamed of the gospel, the message about Jesus. But because of this, Timothy must also not be ashamed of Paul, because Paul is in prison for Jesus. You know, sometimes we're rightly ashamed of other Christians, because sometimes they do stupid and wicked things. A few years ago, it came out that Ravi Zacharias, who had run a huge influential Christian ministry over decades, had been a serial sexual abuser. At about the same time, it also emerged that Jean Vanier, the founder of Lash Ministries, had also sexually abused multiple women. This conduct is utterly shameful, and we can only be ashamed of it. We're not called to stand by people who do things like this simply because they are called Christians. We're not called to be silent about wrongdoing out of loyalty. Our loyalty is to Christ and to his testimony, not just to anyone who bears his name. But sometimes loyalty to Christ does mean we ought to stand by people. That was Timothy's situation. Paul was in prison not for being an abuser or a thief. He was in prison because he bore testimony to Jesus. And so Timothy was called not to be ashamed of him. It's not a great offer, though, that Paul makes, is it? It's not a great offer. Come and join my embarrassing suffering. And Paul doesn't just want Timothy to do this out of personal loyalty. He could have appealed to that, right? They had a long-term friendship and work relationship. He could have appealed to personal loyalty, but he wants Timothy to do this from his own convictions. That's why he goes on now to remind Timothy of what the gospel is and why he himself is not ashamed of it. So this is our second and longer point, Paul's reasons. Verses 9 to 10, and I invite you to look at them on your sheets. I won't put them up on the screen because I'm going to go through them slowly. Verses 9 to 10 are one of the most beautiful summaries of, the, of what Jesus means in the Bible. First, Paul highlights the fact that God's salvation is his free gift. He has saved us, he writes, and called us to a holy life. Notice that, by the way, that what God saves us for is a holy life, sometimes we forget that. He has saved us not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. 
there is a wonderful simplicity and clarity to these words that I just want us to revel in. I think this is another moment where the stunning truth of the gospel had just become clear to Paul as he reached the end of his life. Think about how striking it is for Paul to say these things after a lifetime of difficult, powerful work. God does not save us, he says, because we are worthy of it. Not because of anything we have done, like planting the whole church. He saves us because he wants to, because he chooses to be gracious. This has always been the way God works, actually. Paul's words here remind us of, of remind me, I think, of this wonderful passage in the book of Deuteronomy. I just wanted to share it so we remember this is always God's character. The Lord, God says to Israel, did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. Like basically, if you're going to choose a nation, not you, you know, like you, look, you don't look great. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand. God does not save us because we are impressive or good or noble or cool or beautiful or intelligent because we are good blokes or nice people or kind or generous or because of our hard work or our faithfulness or our successes or our acts of charity or our fine words. He saves us because he just chooses to. I think we want this not to be true. We want to have something to be proud of. Something about which we can say, this is, this is why God chose me. This is what he loves about me. This little beautiful thing that I have. How humbling is it for this to just be grace? Just a gift. But if we will be humbled, if we will let ourselves be humbled, what peace this brings. Because it means that it really does not depend on us. He just chose for his own reasons. He just loved you and me. And not just at one moment, but from all eternity. Look how the apostle goes on. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. God's salvation of us was not just a snap decision made in a moment, maybe a moment where he wasn't paying enough attention. No, it was his eternal decree. It was his purpose before the foundation of the world. Grasp hold of that. Before the Ice Age, before the dinosaurs, before the first living things plopped out of the water, before the solar system and the Earth's atmosphere settled, before the countless millions of years of swirling gas and forming matter and birth and death of stars, before space and time were born in an infinity of pressure and light, before all, the living God chose the man Jesus of Nazareth and in him chose to be generous 
to you. That is the magnitude, says Paul, of the grace that has now been revealed. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus, he says, before the beginning of time. And then he goes on, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour Christ Jesus. The one chosen before time to be the Saviour. The one through whom God chose to give the gift has now come on the scene, the Saviour. And what has he done? Look what it says. Who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Here again is the emphasis I noticed last week, if you were here, where Paul begins by speaking about the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. What Jesus has done, says Paul, is to destroy death and bring an inexhaustible, undefeatable life to light. This is such an extraordinary claim, isn't it? Especially for a man at death's door, as Paul was. And yet when Paul speaks about his death later in in the letter, he doesn't actually use the language of death. He says, the time of my departure is near. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we see a similar thing. Instead of dying, Paul talks about falling asleep. Now, Paul wasn't an idiot, right? He knew that people died. He knew that he would die. And he could say that too. He he, he can use the language of dying. But he wanted to bear witness to the fact that Jesus has changed the character of death. He has changed it so much that even our language of it needs renovation. Because as he puts it in another letter, the sting of death is sin. The sting of death is sin. It is sin that makes death something fearful. But by dying for our sins, Jesus Christ broke the power of death. And by rising from the dead, he opened the door to a life that does not fade or fail or decay, that is imperishable. On Friday, I took a funeral. The Anglican funeral service opens after a couple of initial bits. The kind of main opening is the words of Jesus in John chapter 11. I am the resurrection and the life, says the Lord. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, yet shall he live, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. What an outrageous thing to say at a funeral. Shall never die with the body there. Yes, that's what we believe. That death has been so defeated, so deconstructed, that in a way, death is not even an accurate description of what happens to us anymore. And this triumph and grace comes to us, says Paul, through the gospel, and that leads him to go on to speak of his own work in verse 11. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That's why I'm suffering as I am. Paul makes it clear that he was suffering for the gospel. There were probably people around Timothy who would have disagreed with that. There were probably people who said, no, Paul's suffering because he's mishandled things. Paul's suffering because he just keeps being a jerk to people. 
Timothy will have to use his own judgment about that, but Paul wants him to know how he sees it. I'm suffering as a herald of the gospel. But, he goes on, this is no cause for shame. This is no cause for shame because I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. See those words in verses 11 and 12? Wouldn't it have been easy for Paul to be ashamed? To be ending your life, think about it, as an old, old man in prison, actually in chains, abandoned by many of your friends, most of them in fact, laughed at by the guards, ignored by the powerful and the respected. How undignified and embarrassing, especially for someone who had been respected, admired even, a Roman citizen, well-educated, one of the most brilliant minds of his generation. How easy it would have been for him to just feel a deep shame at what his life had come to. But he doesn't. At least, he's working not to. He's, he's choosing to refuse that temptation. Because he says, I know whom I have believed. That is a beautiful phrase. He's not ashamed because he knows someone. He knows the one in whom he has placed his trust. He knows Jesus, you see. And in him, he knows the living God. And he knows that he is loved by him and saved by him. And that there is set before him, not just a humiliating death, but an infinity of life. And that all makes the shame of the present vanish like a morning mist. And because he knows Jesus, he knows his power as well. He knows that Jesus is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. That he is able there is literally, he is powerful. Paul knows the power of God in Jesus. And so he knows that his efforts will not be in vain. What he has labored for will not be lost. God will guard it. Again, let's remember how easy it would have been for Paul to despair of his life's work. In chains at the end of his life with co-workers abandoning him left, right and center, churches still very small and fragile, how easy it would have been for him to just feel that it would all surely come to nothing. But Paul does not despair because he knows Jesus and so he knows the power of God. He knows that God works his power through weakness. He knows that salvation came through the cross. He knows that behind and within the fragility and smallness and shameful appearance of his ministry was working a spiritual power of indestructible life. And before we move on, let's just notice... <laughs> how right Paul was to believe that God would guard what he had entrusted to him. Because in the end, it was through the work of the Apostle Paul, more than any other person, that God built the Christian church. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, said Jesus. It is the smallest of seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of plants, 
Paul sitting in prison is that mustard seed. And in the end, God was able, more than able, to guard what he entrusted to him. Okay, that last phrase about guarding what he's entrusted to him leads us to the last part of our passage to look at today because that word uh, that's translated in verse 12, what I have entrusted, is the same phrase in the original language as is in verse 14. Uh, So in verse 12, um, it could be translated the deposit entrusted, uh, same as in verse 14. So in verse 12, Paul says, "God God is able to guard my deposit, And then in verse 14, he calls Timothy to guard the good deposit. You see the link? Let's read again from verse 13. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern... I've got this one on the screen if you want. Keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Paul calls Timothy to safeguard, to protect, to defend the teaching that he learnt from Paul. Notice a couple of things about these words. First, uh, notice that phrase, sound teaching. The word sound can also mean wholesome or healthy. I think the idea is that this this is teaching that is good, that is healthy and that gives health. It creates healthy communities and healthy people. Secondly, notice this image of a deposit The idea is that this pattern of teaching, these words from Paul, they don't belong to Timothy, they've just been entrusted to him. This is precious property that has been lodged with him for a time on trust, and his job is to look after it. How is he meant to do that? In a way, the whole rest of the letter is going to spell this out. It will mean opposing false teaching. It will mean perseverance in preaching and ministry. It's worth waiting to see more as we follow this series of what it will mean. But at this early point, I'd like to just say two things. Firstly, we should just notice that a key task of the church and of Christian ministry is to defend the faith, to guard the message of the gospel. There's there's papers blowing all around me. It's very exciting for me, but possibly distracting for you, just... Bear with it. A key task is to, is to guard the message of the gospel and the, the, the teaching that accompanies it as a sacred trust. Christians are not called to be argumentative. Actually, Paul tells Timothy more than once, you've got to avoid arguments. But we are called to hold to a pattern of sound teaching and to protect it. Please don't be annoyed at Christian leaders if they're doing that or trying to. Secondly, I also think it's important to notice at this point the contrasting examples Paul mentions in the verses that follow straight away. So on the one hand, in verse 15, are those in Asia who have deserted him. On the other hand is someone called Onesiphorus. Difficult name, you'll you'll survive. Let's read about him again. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus because... He often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. 
Notice the different ways that Onesiphorus helped Paul. He was not ashamed of him, but came to visit him. He refreshed him, which I think probably means with both provisions and just with friendship. He was persistent in his care. He he had to search for him. He was a man, it it seems, who just took the initiative in looking for practical ways to support the apostles. Onesiphorus reminds us that guarding the good deposit has always depended upon a, a range of kinds of support. And I want, us to note, I want us to notice this because I think he, this guy may be an inspiration for some of us. Not everyone is called to public ministry like Timothy and Paul, but everyone can be like Onesiphorus in some way or other, looking for ways to support gospel ministry, getting practical, offering material and financial support, and just not being ashamed. I hope he inspires you because I suspect he and people like him will be among the really great ones on the last day. Okay, well, where does this leave us? I hope, I hope you have been challenged by this passage to think about how you can take your part in guarding the good deposit, in joining in suffering for the gospel and just not being ashamed I hope some of us are inspired, as I said, by Paul's words about Onesiphorus, to think about how we can support gospel ministry. I want you to think about three things, your attention, your time, and your money. First, your attention. Give attention to the ministry of the gospel, especially in prayer. Pray for the ministry of the gospel. Pray for your connect group leaders, for the staff of this church, for other Christian leaders and teachers. Pray for the Archbishop who is coming here in two weeks' time. Give your time to this task. Put your hand up to serve at something. Don't just give your time to other things. And give your money to this task. I don't often talk about this, but you know what? I should. Because it is a way of honouring the plain fact that the ministry of the gospel depends on people like Onesiphorus, willing to give their resources to sustain gospel ministry. We haven't said anything about giving for a while at church. If you've joined us recently or if you've been meaning to think about it again, please do. But also think about giving money elsewhere to other gospel ministries, maybe to our mission partners. I'm also hopeful that some here might be inspired by Paul's words to Timothy. Because maybe you are being called to give your life's work to the ministry of declaring and guarding the good news of Jesus. It's not easy work, but it is a holy privilege. Is the Lord calling you to the work of bearing witness to him? I would love to talk to you, if you think he might be. But you know what I hope most of all, as we end this sermon? Most of all, I hope that we will all be struck afresh by the wonder and the goodness of the message we are called to serve, and the power and the beauty of the one who speaks it. Because it is as we are gripped by that that the rest will follow. That's why Paul bothers to remind Timothy of what the gospel means here. 
you know, he didn't have to write verses 9 to 10. He could easily have left them out. But he knew that the key to perseverance, the key to not being ashamed of the testimony of Jesus, is to have a clear, firm grip on what God has done for us in Christ and who it is we're serving. It's a terrible offer, Paul's offer. Join with me in my embarrassing suffering for the gospel. A terrible offer. Unless you know what the gospel means and who it is who gives it to us. That is the news of the destruction of death and the appearance of indefatigable life. And that the one who calls to us to this task is the God who from all eternity has purposed his grace in Jesus Christ. If you know that, it becomes the greatest offer you've ever been made. What is a little shame, even a lot of shame, here and now compared to knowing he who from eternity's infinity became the love of God giving life to us? listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.